Welcome to Between a Rock and a Hard Place. I'm Hannah. And I'm Colleen. And we're going to tell you about our life in Iraq. It's going to be fun. I hope so. So wash your hands and don't touch your face. That's the best advice you can have in a crisis. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe not all crises. Maybe not all crises. But I will say, in the ones that I can think of, it would still be good advice. Yeah, I mean... It's good life advice, generally. Generally. There have been a lot of crises in Kurdistan. Yes. Like, there are people in somewhat defined by the multitude of trials and struggles that they have undergone. Yeah, it's like an an ongoing lifestyle, almost. Yeah. Not because Kurds are overdramatic. Like, there really are terrible things happening to them and around them perpetually. Right. Usually not their fault. Although, Mm -hmm. maybe sometimes, nobody's perfect. And so I feel like in living in Iraq, we got exposed to that in a way that Americans just do not experience. Right, because as Americans, we really don't experience a lot of ongoing crisis in the levels, at least, that are experienced nationally in Kurdistan. People have individual crises and, like, different you know, families have harder times and and there are different communities that experience that, but it's not necessarily on a national level the way Kurds do. Or as long and drawn out and from every direction. I think when we talk about a long time of tragedy in their history, as basically all of Kurdish history is laced with people trying to wipe them out or uh, some crisis of some some other kind. If it's not war, it's internal issues or just the fact that they live in the mountains and it's hard to live there. So we we did experience uh, several different bouts of crisis. Right. Some um, more minor and iterations some, of crisis. You know, bigger. But I think all of those and the way that the Kurdish people or, you know, the people living there, whether they're Kurds or not, responded to those crises, affected, like, how they they responded showed us a different perspective on things. Yeah. A different perspective and, um, I think influenced even the way that we think about our own problems back in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily that we minimalize the things that we're going through, because hard things are hard things, no matter where you are. Right. But there is kind of that shift of perspective of... Yeah, this is difficult, for sure, but I will get through it. If the Kurds can survive everything that they've gone through, (laughs) me having to deal with sitting in the DMV for two hours is, I can make it. Right. So, I would say the current crisis that neither of us are living through there... Right, we get a break this time. ...is um, the coronavirus. Or as we like to call it, COVID-19. Because that's the actual name. And from what I can tell, and from what my friends have told me there, there's a lot of freaking out about it. Yeah. I think that as as calm and cool and collected as Kurds can be about some things, there definitely are other things that they kind of just, like, are overdramatic about. And I don't mean to say that COVID-19 is something that they are being overdramatic about. There's a lot of reasons for them to be concerned about it. Right. But... Sometimes they they preemptively freak out, and then when things actually come to crisis point, they are calm, cool, and collected. And I think that generally applies to issues regarding health. Yes. So, health things are things to freak out about. War things are not things to freak out about. Right. Which is weird, because 
I feel like, I don't know, I would be the other way around. Right. And I think most Americans would. I think in part because we do have, for all of its flaws, a pretty good health system. We are able to cure and help a lot of people with a lot of different illnesses, yes. And we just have that background in health knowledge. Like, Mm -hmm. most Americans know some form of CPR or first aid. Or, you know, we know what to do if you have a fever. Right. There's a lot of... My friends in Kurdistan didn't have that knowledge. Right. And and it's a it's one of those weird knowledge gaps to me. Which, if you don't know what to do in a situation, yeah, you're going to freak out about it. Right. And so, you know, we get the kids who would fall down on the playground and come up in and be like, my arm is broken. And it's like, you have a little scrape. You're going to be fine. No, I need to go to the nurse. I'm going to die. And it's like, you're... But you're not. <laughs> I mean, I once had a kid who, uh, I wasn't actually up on the hillside at a picnic, who fell down on the hillside. He did get a pretty good cut on his head. And we did end up taking him back to the city to his parents to, to deal with it. That said, the very first report that I got from kids running down the mountain to tell me what had happened was that he was dead. Right. Even though he was not dead. Like, obviously so. Obviously so. To to me, at least. But to them, it was like, he's bleeding from the head. Of course he's dead. And I was just like, But what? he was, like, conscious. Oh, and... conscious and walking down the hillside. Uh-huh. It, and, and, you know, the, the more kids that came down, it, it, it softened to from he's dead to he's going to die. Not dead yet. Not dead yet. But yes, by the time we actually got to him... We were able to clean him up, put a Band-Aid on. Get him where he needed he to be. He ended up being fine. Right. Do you have a scar? I don't remember. So it wasn't, like, all the way across his forehead no. or anything? No. It was It was small. It was just a little one. And, I mean, he had a good bump with it. You know, so we, we had to... We took him back to have his parents take him to a doctor and make sure all of the, the different liabilities that are present sure. in such a thing... At no point were we in deep concern over his life. The rumors of his death were greatly exaggerated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it is kind of interesting when things like that happen. There are there are just some odd cultural gaps of things that make Kurds really nervous that seem silly to us, but there is that, like, they just don't know what to do. I taught health class for a while, and there were some things that my students had never heard before hmm. that they were so surprised about and thought that everybody should know this information. Things like you don't put water on a grease fire. And with the kinds of fires they have with things like kerosene there, they're like, we always throw water on these. Like, how come we don't know this? It's just an educational educational gap. gap of some mm-hmm. kind. I think fire is definitely one of the things that I, I worried about in Kurdistan because I was like, I know what to do in the case of a fire. But... I'm not confident that, like, even within my own apartment, like, leaving out the students in the school, within my own apartment complex, if something caught on fire, there there aren't smoke alarms, there's no, like, really not a 911, and I don't know that people would know, like, hey, get out of the building and leave everything. Yeah. Like, I could definitely see people being like, I can't leave everything. You know, I gotta bring my picture of Barzani, at least. And so, I I think, I didn't, like, actively worry about fire, but I was like, yeah, a fire, I feel like, would be a disaster. (laughs) 
Well, and I would say my first my first crisis in Kurdistan was a fire. Oh yeah. Oh man. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> that's was... why I had panic about it. it was like <laughs> I know we've dealt with this before. Well, and I wasn't there when it happened. Sure. It was. I mean, as far as we know, the building was empty. There were different rumors. No one really knows how the fire started. It could have been electrical. It could have been on purpose. That aside, it really did show me how a lot of people there deal with crisis and how they especially communicate bad news. Sure. And so I remember getting into the car with my teammates who had come to pick me up. We were carpooling out to the school and they said, he just got a phone call saying that, you know, there was a small fire in the office. Everything's fine, but it, it may, you know, there may be, you know, some extra people there or something. And and I was like, oh, okay. And then we get further along and he gets another phone call. And he's like, wait, what? How much? Wait, where? And the next phone call, like, it took us, I don't know, a good half an hour to get out to the school at that sure. point. But the next phone call said, you know, oh, well, like, the whole office has smoke damage. And it's, it's, a, it's got, it's been a little bit burned, like, mm-hmm. but still kind of like, you know, localized, small. Slightly worse than we thought. Slightly but... worse than we thought, but we're all still okay. He got another phone call before we got to the school that said, the fire department's here and, you know, it's all taken care of, but really the whole office, which will I will say was a wooden walled structure inside kind of the concrete building. Okay. So, I mean, in some ways it made sense that it was more flammable than the rest of the building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really badly damaged. The office is really, like, it's really burned. And, you know, like, there's there's definitely, like, smoke in the hallway. and But really, everything's fine. It just keeps getting worse the closer we get to the like school. A, like a frog in water turning yeah. that heat up just a little bit and at a time. Like, I, I don't know what, like, okay, okay. Like, is it still burning? Is that why we're, like still concerned about this. And um, we get there, the fire truck is pulling out of the school parking lot and there is still smoke rising from the building. Oh, I was like, wait, why are they leaving? (laughs) And we get in and obviously the entire building, which is made of concrete block. So like on a whole, it's It's all still standing. It's not not structurally damaged Mm -hmm. necessarily, but the entire building has obviously had significant heat and soot damage. Like everything was coated in soot down every hallway inside every classroom. The plastic clocks have been melted off the walls. All of the splits, the air conditioners and everything are sagging in these weird like smiles. Like Heat like damaged. heat damaged. Like the plastic has been melted. Yikes! So not like the office has some damage. It's like the whole school. The whole school is non-functional. The plaster is peeling off the walls. Oh my word! The room of computers, which was only a few doors away from where the office was, like the computers are completely destroyed. Yeah, they are melted piles of black. So what was that? A hot fire. It was a hot fire. And there is nothing... Like, we are not having school today. Right. Not remotely. Yikes. But kids are starting to show up now. And there's still smoke. And, like, the office is now this pile in the middle of this hallway Mm. of rubble and 
charred things. Bits of paper. Bits of paper. And it's still smoking. (laughs) You're like, okay, okay. Not a small fire. Not easily resolved. Not like everything's going to be okay today. So we, what we ended up doing, we collected up books. We put sooty tables out in the parking lot, collected up each grade's books. because All the books had been spread out on tables. The books were all fine, just covered in soot. Yeah. And we got plastic bags. We stuck kids' books in plastic bags and doled out books to kids to their grade and said, take these home and clean them however you can. And we'll get back to you about when we're going to have school again. School will actually start. Wash your hands. Mm -hmm. Don't touch your face. (laughs) Yes, good advice in this situation, indeed. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a very exciting first day of school for Mm -hmm. me in a new country. Yeah. Woohoo! I spent all day with trial by fire. Yeah. Literally. Let's just say, after that point, I was never really nervous about the first day of school. Like, those first day of school nerves that everybody talks about, I didn't have that ever again. You dealt with the worst right from the get-go. I'm like, it could be worse. The school could be burned up, you know, before you get there. Yeah. Which would be be rough. A rough start, (laughs) I'm sure. Hey there, this is John Nelson, the director of Servant Group International. I just wanted to encourage you to consider going to Iraq as a teacher. If you do, I can guarantee that at least one life will be changed. I, I can't say that I ever dealt with any any of those kinds of crises. Not even really medical crisis. I had some. I had teammates that dealt with some pretty serious medical issues while they were were in Iraq. And it was really neat to see how their national friends kind of rallied around them and Mm -hmm. helped them with a lot of things. Mm -hmm. One who needed to be taken to the hospital via ambulance. Like, there was just no way he could get in a taxi and go. Which I feel like is the way most people get to the hospital. Right. I mean, it's definitely what's recommended in the faster way. They ended up calling one of their nearby friends who had the number for an ambulance company that then came and got him and took him to the hospital. But then their their national friends really did a good job taking care of them in the midst of that. Going to the hospital to check on people. We talked about how Kurdistan is a cash-based society. Right. That means even the hospital bills, like the tests that you get along the way, you have to pay as as you go. They're done, and they just at that time didn't have that much cash in hand. It, mm-hmm. It's definitely cheaper than in the U.S., but it's a lot of cash, right? And so they had uh, he was working for a national guy outside of the schools, and his boss showed up with like several thousand dollars in cash and just paid for everything and was like, you know, you're a guest in this country. You shouldn't have to worry about this. You're our family. Your family's not here. So we're going to take care of you. And another national friend who was a doctor who helped them kind of navigate the the healthcare that they were getting. And so that was really cool to see just kind of how that communal kind of life Uh, Mm -hmm. helped in a time of crisis because I wasn't living in the same city as them. I ended up coming down the next day Mm -hmm. because that was as soon as I could get there. And so it was like, I couldn't be their community for them, but they had all these people around them that that helped them with things. 
And I think that was one of one of the coolest circumstances of like a Kurd, if a Kurd had been in the house when the crisis happened, I think they would have flipped out. But after the crisis was kind of given into the hands of the medical people, uh, they definitely like came in and, and gave some really practical help, which was yeah. very cool to see. And always so generous. Yeah, always. Always generous. But I know that Kurds, uh, when it's their own family that have have some more serious medical medical concerns, will be a little kind of like the uh, there's a, a small fire kind of phone calls. Will not tell the person how bad it is. <laughs> yeah. Like they want to shield them from it in some way, or they want to shield their their loved ones from it. So like Kurds won't ever say that someone has cancer. Mm-hmm. That is. Because if if you say they have cancer, then it's real, I guess. Or, or they'll freak out and you'll just cause them extra pain and it won't mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little confusing sometimes where those lines fall. So a lot of times, you know, you just get, well, they're not feeling well. Mm-hmm. They're, they're tired. They're very tired. Or they're a little bit sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when a Kurd admits to being sick beyond, like, kids who try to say they're sick to get out of school. You should be more concerned than when Americans are like, yeah, you know, I have a cold. But see, they would never say they have a cold necessarily. They'll say they're a little bit sick, and then Mm -hmm. it's like, it could be anything. Like, it could be they're actually a little bit sick. Mm -hmm. It could be that, like, they've just been diagnosed with some life-altering disease that has no cure. If it is finally admitted that they are sick, it probably means that they're dead or nearly so <laughs> like yeah, it's there's weird. there's not a lot of there's not that slow entrance into this person is going to die it's well they're just a little sick oh now they're dead and i think because of that there is a lot of hysteria when someone has to go to the hospital for some reason right or when someone says they are sick sometimes the people who are hear that do freak out about mm-hmm. it in a way that seems out of or over dramatic to us right but they are also potentially picking up on the clues of when they say they're a little bit sick they don't mean a little bit sick right they mean like real sick real sick this is bad but again on the flip side of that i would say the the crisis that i went through in kurdistan i was there during the rise of of isis yeah which big one everyone in the u.s was like you shouldn't go back you shouldn't go you shouldn't be there that's not it's bad. You shouldn't go. And I went anyway, in part because I I know that Kurds, the Kurds would take care of me if it got really bad. And in part because I knew that it was what God wanted me to do. And it was really interesting to be there during that time and see how the Kurds dealt with it. There was kind of this, this weird mix of like, of course, of course, of course we're at war again. Of course someone is going to try to come in and kill us. What are you going to do? Yeah. Not in the sense of we're not going to defend ourselves, because the other side of that was we're going to kick their butts, you know? Like, we're going to defend our borders at all costs, and we're going to... Kurds are going to take care of Kurds, and, like... Right. We will conquer all or die trying kind of thing. Yeah, that very martyr attitude that... Mm -hmm is, you know, the name of the Peshmerga, those who are ready, you know, about to die. Mm -hmm. And so there was just that kind of weird juxtaposition of, well, we're probably all going to die, 
but we're going to die fighting kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and with that comes kind of a mellow attitude about it. Mm-hmm. There's no panic with right. it. Yeah, there was no panic. I didn't have students who had uh, citizenship in European countries or green cards to other countries. Their families weren't going, we're getting out of here. This is crazy. They were going, no, this is our country and we're going to stay and help and fight in any way that we can. There were some differences in the way that life was lived. Nationally, there was kind of this decree of there will not be celebrations during this time. But that wasn't because there was, like, some sort of threat. That was just because enough people had died that there was enough mourning involved. Right. That they didn't want to make people miss out on parties because they're mourning. Or or minimalize the tragedy by being like, yeah, people died, but we're still going to have fun. But at the same time, it wasn't fear that ISIS was going to come and get them in their picnics. No, not at all. (laughs) No, it was just more out of respect for for those who were fighting. There was a lot more caution. Uh, (laughs) They were a lot more worried about me than I think I had experienced in the past, which Mm -hmm. is saying a lot because people were... Not, like, always deeply concerned, but always concerned about, like, hey, are you being safe? Are things okay with you? What's going on? But things like, my students would never let me ride in a taxi by myself, ever, during the day or at night, which was not a thing that had happened in the past. Their parents, especially for the girls, the parents would come and pick them up from school or take them if we were going to go somewhere. The parents did all of that. They didn't want their, their kids in taxis. Mm-hmm. I had several different students say, if things go badly, you don't need to be afraid. My family will take care of you. I'll take you, we'll take you to our village, which is like every family comes from or has a house in a village outside of the city, which are usually up in the mountains somewhere that's like the protected place for the Kurds. And so that offer was basically like, we're going to give you refuge and we're going to protect you. Um, and they would have. Like, and they would you have. You know they mean it. Absolutely. They absolutely would have. And a couple of kids whose parents' fathers were in the government circles who said, if things go badly, my father will help you leave. And so even if the borders close, you know, we'll find a way to get you out. And so it wasn't just like one or two people. It was like half of my students and almost all of the people that I worked with were like, we don't want you to be afraid. Like, this is a scary time. Like, be careful, but we're going to take care of you. I had, I had one experience where, yeah, I had students offer me, yeah, family's guards or, and it, I mean, it wasn't something I ever took them up on. In that moment of crisis, it was like, yes, you are our priority. We'll do whatever it takes for you. I never felt fear during that time. Like, Mm -hmm. I never was like, oh, I gotta stay in my house, or maybe I shouldn't have come, or I'm not gonna go and do this thing because it's scary. I think I was, I was more cautious in some ways, you know, as recommended to me. And I kept a closer eye on the news maybe than I had in the past. (laughs) Yeah. And kept in close touch with our our national friends who kept us updated on on what was happening. But I don't remember ever feeling fear or reading from my friends that I should feel fear because they were not freaking out about it. Right. Like they were keeping a concerned eye on it. Right. They weren't being reckless or naive Mm -hmm. about it. But they've experienced enough to know when something's a real 
current immediate threat. And when, even if there is a threat a little ways away, Mm -hmm. you have to continue to live life and continue to function. And you can't let that threat that is, you know, beyond your arm's length actually change how you move forward in life. Because if Mm -hmm. they did, they would never have any lives at all. Like there's always something that's looming and threatening on the horizon. Yeah. It also helped me understand kind of the survivalist attitude that Kurds have And not in the sense of, like, we're going to make it through this, but in the sense of, uh, we're not going to plan for the future. We're going to get through right now, what is happening right now. Which was something that, up to that point, I was like, why wouldn't you plan for the future? Yeah. Like, I know, historically, you've had a lot of wars, but, like, everything's fine right now. Like, plan ahead a little bit. But going through that and just seeing how, how quickly the turnaround was from everything's fine to... Things are not really fine. Yeah. It was kind of like, all right, like, I understand, you know, I come in here and say, yeah, I'm staying. I'm staying for the duration of this, however long it takes. But also having to realize if things had gotten worse, I would not have been staying. No, I would have been you leaving. leaving. You right. could have left. In part because being an American, even though my Kurdish friends would have taken excellent care of me, it would have put them in more danger mm-hmm. than I I was really willing to put them in. But yeah, seeing that kind of like, well, I could build a future, but Who knows? not here. Who knows what tomorrow's going to bring? Mm-hmm. I mean, it could fall apart tomorrow. Right. I remember running into that early on with weird little things, like sometimes the lack of like high quality things. Like there's not a point in investing in a high quality piece of furniture. Right. For example, if you have the mentality that something bad could happen and, like, I might just lose it. Mm -hmm. So it's okay if it doesn't last. Right. Or things like libraries. Like, there's just not a lot of people with personal libraries there. Mm -hmm. Part of that, I mean, really is a luxury of being able to plan for the future, of having a stable place. They're not things that are easy to move or carry or transport or... And for people who have lost homes more than once and have moved from place to place and, you know, who have fled to the mountains and these kinds of things, those heavy, non-portable possessions of luxury are just not a high priority. Right. Yeah, there's a little bit of that trauma detachment that happens when it comes to to things. Mm -hmm. So now with the coronavirus... It's a medical thing. I have seen some videos of people dancing, mm-hmm. Hal Parquet wearing rubber gloves, and hairnets, weirdly enough. I mean, why not? They've canceled school for the next month, mm-hmm. which sounds extreme, but a big portion of that is off anyway because of now Rose holidays. Right. They have canceled most public gatherings, mm-hmm. funerals and picnics and things, which is very sad for now Rose month. Right. Yeah, and there's definitely concern. And I think for the first time we've had Kurds tell us, hey, maybe don't, don't come. (laughs) Right. Don't come during this time. Probably, probably stay out, which is not a reaction I've ever had. Like, even with ISIS pushing in, they were like, oh no, yeah, come, come on. It's (laughs) fine. But I think with the way the society has responded and the way people are, you know, kind of Mm self-isolating to some extent... The idea that someone's going to come around and visit a whole bunch of people and potentially, you know, spread germs or viruses right. across different people. It's kind of like, nah, nah. 
And even, like, we can't go on a picnic anyway, so why bother? (laughs) Right. We want you to come when we can go on picnics. That was one reaction I got. Like, we can't go on picnics, so there's no point. Which just emphasizes Kurdish love of picnics. It does. It does. Yeah. So we can just tell them the same thing we hear here. Yep. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. That's that's uh, that's what you should be doing. Keep your keep your hands clean. If you're an introvert, self isolate. It'll be fun anyway. Maybe don't go on a lot of picnics. Although fresh air would be good mm-hmm. if you could do it without people around you. <laughs> you can go on a personal hike. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. It's not gonna help. Nope. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at Servant Group International on Facebook or Instagram, and you should check out our blog and complete transcripts over at servantgroup.org. And it's really helpful for us if you share our podcast or leave a review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. It helps us know that people are listening, and you can let us know what you want to hear next. Thanks Thanks for for listening. Real cool. Be a jet. Oh, okay. Or, I don't remember what the other one is. The jets and the something else. I don't know. That makes me feel like a terrible person. Sharks. Sharks and the jets. Oh, it's because you don't like sharks. Yeah, that's why I forgot about the sharks. (laughs) (laughs) Hey.